The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I've never seen anything like that, like, like any of it. The power that this guy has. Frankly, I'm a little embarrassed that I hadn't trusted him more. A little sorry that I hadn't trusted him more. It was an interesting day. John 6 began when he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and, and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land, to which they were going. Verse 1, we find Jesus traveling to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a large lake in the northern part of Israel. We, we don't know when exactly this was happening in relation to the previous events. I'm listening to the microphone here. Am I off on this microphone or on? I'm off. Sorry. Now, chronologically, as I said, we don't know exactly when this happened. You recall that John's no longer writing in relation to chronology. He's writing by themes. And the main theme that he's focusing on now is rejection. Rejection of Jesus by the masses and in particular by the Jewish leadership. And that's going to appear here again in this context as well. But for the moment, things are a little different. He's not, he's not rejected, he's popular. The large crowds, verse 2, are continually coming after him because they are seeing him continually perform miracle after miracle on sick and hurting people. That's what Jesus is doing. And so they're following him, and in an attempt to get away from them and to get a break and to get some rest, Jesus leads them across the sea 
But the crowds catch up. Oh, and incidentally, it was about the time of the Passover. Verse 4 is kind of slipped in there, as if it is just an incidental comment. But in fact, verse 4 is pretty important, important to understand the, the general context and the background of many things that happen here in, in chapter 6, this week and especially next week. The Passover was near. We've talked about the Passover before, especially back in chapter 1 when we saw that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God, the, the Lamb slain at the Passover time. This comes from way back in history when the Jewish people were still enslaved in Egypt. And God had decided finally to liberate them and bring them out. And he exercised judgment upon Egypt. And finally, the tenth judgment was the killing of the firstborn. All throughout the land, God was going to kill in judgment the firstborn in every family, even of animals. However, this judgment would pass over those whom had hidden themselves in their homes under the blood of a slain lamb. They would put blood on the doorpost of their house, hide in there, and the judgment would pass over. Judgment taken away by the blood of the lamb. That's the focus of the Passover. But speaking a little more broadly, the Passover was also commemorating, it was a time to remember various events that were all right around that time. Because immediately, the next day after this judgment, Pharaoh finally did let the people go. Moses led them out of slavery. And then Pharaoh chased them. And through Moses, God parted the Red Sea. The people passed through. You can read about this in Exodus uh, chapters 12 and 13 and 14. And then Exodus 15 is a, is a chapter of thanksgiving because God then judged the army of Pharaoh. And in chapter 16, immediately then right after these events, we have the people hungry in the desert and Moses feeding them with bread from heaven. And that takes us back to John chapter 6. It's a time of the Passover. And all these events are in their minds as they come up to Jesus. He's seeking some solitude. But he sees the large crowds approaching, and it was a large crowd. We find out it's 5,000 men. Well, typically they only numbered the men, so we have no idea really how large the crowd was, because surely there were some women and some children there. We don't know, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, large crowd. Maybe like half or, or two-thirds of the size of the Delta Center or the Tox Box, or whatever we call it these days. A lot of people. We don't know how large it was, but it's a lot of people. They're there. And the, the other Gospels record a number of other facts about this day, but John has condensed it all to cut right to the point. Phil, Philip. Where are we going to get the food to feed these thousands and thousands of people? I've come out here into the desert. They followed me out here. I've been teaching them all day. Now it's time to eat. What are we going to do? And Philip has no idea. Is eight months' wages, if we had that much money, eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread to give everybody a bite. If we had that much money, and if we could go to a town, and if they had that much bread just lying around, and if we could somehow cart it all back here, that's not going to work. What are we going to do? Nothing. We can't. And another guy speaks up. Well, we do have this boy here in his lunch. Two little fishies and five loaves of bread. And don't think like king salmon type fish. This is a boy and his lunch. They're not loaves. There's five barley rolls and two little sardines. 
for a little bit of flavor. The barley roll was the, was the poor man's filler. He's a poor boy with lunch. What's that going to do? It, it's like the disciples need to come up with a million dollars and they kind of rummage through their pockets and they drop on the table a dollar twenty-seven in nickels and pennies. But let's see what we have here. That's probably not going to cut it, is it? And I think he probably smiled. As he told them, have the people recline for a feast. He doesn't just say sit down. The word that he uses is recline for a feast. They would, they would eat reclined, leaning on one elbow, eating with the other hand. And that's what he tells them to do. Have the people recline. And then he thanks the food and distributes it all. And John takes care to emphasize the magnitude of the miracle here. He wants to make this really clear. This boy's lunch becomes a feast for all these people. And there's more left over at the end than they had when they started. Some criticize this story and say, oh, the people didn't actually eat. That is not the case. It's not the case that the people politely all said, no thanks, I'm not really hungry. Passed it all by. It's not the case that everybody brought their own food, actually. Clearly, in verses 11, 12, and 13, we see several places where they ate. They ate their fill as much as they wanted. They ate from this bread and from this fish. And they had the leftovers from this bread and from this fish that was 12 baskets full. It's really clear. A miracle happened and the people realized it. They all saw what happened. That's why they respond like they do. It was a stunning miracle. At the time of the feast of the Passover, at the time of the feast of the Passover, here's this miracle worker providing bread again for the people in the wilderness. And they see that and right away their minds leap to prophecy. Both written prophecy and typological prophecy. You recall typological prophecy? That's prophecy that's not necessarily a verbal word, but it's a pattern, a concrete thing that's established that is something at this time, but is pointing toward to some, forward to something greater. Like the temple, we talked about this before. The temple was a real temple. It served a purpose, but it's also typologically a pattern pointing towards the, the future temple, Jesus. So the thinking of, of written prophecy and typological prophecy. Think about Moses and what Moses is. At the time of the Passover, he led the people into the wilderness and they were hungry in the desert. He prayed for them and then through him God provided bread. The people fed and sustained at the hand of Moses. And then there's the miracle-working prophet Elisha. Not Elijah, Elisha, who followed right on the heels of Elijah. This miracle-worker Elisha healed the leper, raised the dead. Sound like anybody else you know who's followed on the heels of an Elijah? This man who heals a leper, raises the dead, also fed a crowd of people, a smaller crowd, I'll buy it, fed a crowd of people with some barley bread, with a bunch left over after he was done. Another miraculous story. You can read about that in 2 Kings 4. There's this pattern. Moses and Elijah, prophets through whom God meets people's needs. The details are different each time, but there's a pattern set up. Hungry people, a prophet, God feeding them. That's the type. And then along comes another miracle worker who very deliberately sits the people down for a feast at Passover and then takes five barley rolls and feeds them all with much left over. He fits right into the pattern. And the people see that sign 
And perhaps also their minds jumped to written prophecy like that in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses talked about a prophet like himself who was to come. There were different interpretations as to what that meant, but that probably was in their mind. They see the type, Jesus fitting into it, they think of the written prophecy, and immediately they leap up, he is the one who was to come. He's the prophet. The crowd begins to all think this, and so they sought to make him king. That was one of the interpretations of this prophet who was to come, is that he would be the Messiah, in fact. Evidently, that's what this crowd believed. And so they want to make him king and set him up as ruler of the people. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with it, though. Jesus shuts the event down and then withdraws further into the mountains by himself. He's going to meet up with them again next week, actually the very next day. Next week's passage is going to show the same group of people and Jesus back together, and they're going to talk some more about this, because right now, Jesus is very popular with them, and next week he's going to clarify some things, and that's when the rejection comes. That's for next week, though. Now the focus shifts from Jesus and this crowd to Jesus and his disciples. The other Gospels, again, have more details here. Explain that Jesus stayed behind. He wanted to pray. He sent them ahead to cross the sea again, said he'd catch up later somehow. A storm arose. It was blowing hard against the boat, and the waves were making it hard for them to make headway. They'd rowed several miles. They'd been blown off course. All that's in the other Gospels. Here, John focuses it in, focuses in on Jesus, so as to make one thing clear. The disciples fear. They're not afraid of the storm. They're not afraid of a storm at night. Well, that would be scary, I think. Their fear is entirely connected to Jesus. They see something there in the evening, in the darkness, and they have a fear of encountering something that is beyond them. It's the fear of the supernatural. When, when the life that you know, the, the little box that we live in, where things work such and so, it's coming apart. And you don't know what to do about it. You can't put it back together. People don't walk on water. It doesn't happen. But it is happening. Right there, someone is coming towards us even. Walking on the water. At night. Can you picture the scene? It must have been terrifying. And then that someone speaks to them. It is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. An interesting phrase. Loaded, like so much of what John has for us, it's loaded. On the one hand, it's in the original language, it's an entirely normal way of saying, it's me. It's me, Jesus. Hey, you recognize me? Totally normal. But think of the setting. There's nothing normal about this setting. That leads us to the, on the other hand, this phrase is also, I am. It's a translation of the Old Testament name of God. That what you read in English Bibles, you'll see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord's name is what Jesus says. It would be the normal way of saying it's me, but in this setting where there's something so clearly supernatural going on, and in the broader setting where Jesus so repeatedly takes the name of God for his own, he declares it about himself and he owns it, You see the loaded meaning here. He's not just saying, hey, it's me. He's saying, it's me, the I am. 
and I'm showing it to you as I walk miles across the water in the midst of a storm. Don't be afraid. It's me. You see the flow of thought here. He's a prophet like Moses and like Elijah. Let's make him king. And John wants to clarify one thing. He skips a whole bunch of other details. He wants to clarify one thing. Oh, yes, he's a prophet. He should be king. But here's one up on Moses and one up on Elijah. He's also God. Let me show you as he walks across the water. John cuts out a lot, a lot of other details to make that point. And that's the text for today. It continues on next week. That's the text for today. What does this passage have for us? Well, I'm going to emphasize the first story about the feeding. And as is often the case, there's a sign here that's pointing towards something in particular about Jesus, pointing something out about Jesus, and then we're supposed to respond to that sign in some way. So there are these two basic points, something about Jesus and something about the response. That's how I'm going to approach the text. And together, I think they're, they're pushing towards one overarching theme, pretty simple one. Trust the provision of Jesus. Today, the emphasis is trust the provision of Jesus. We begin to approach that with the, the first main point. This passage is showing us the provision of Jesus, how Jesus provides for life. Jesus provides for life, my first main point. That's the, the point of the sign. The power to provide for life rests in Jesus. Obviously, he has the power to provide for physical life. He takes this single lunch, he looks at it, he gives thanks for it, and then he feeds this massive crowd. We've read this story before, and so we kind of yawn. That's stunning. Think about that. He takes this much food, feeds the Delta Center, and has this much food left over. That's amazing. And again, the, it's shown to be amazing by the magnitude of it. It's done simply. He doesn't even pray to ask God to do it. He just says, thank you for this food, and distributes it. It's simple. It happens suddenly. It leaves everybody shocked at the end. He has the power to provide like that. And that, that much is obvious. We're going to come back to that. But realize also that the power of Jesus to provide for life far exceeds just the physical realm. Far beyond that. Time and again, these passages that we look at are working on two different levels. The physical and the spiritual. Over and over we find that. And those who only have eyes to see the physical, to see the tangible, what's right in front of them. If that's you, you're missing, you're missing the main point. You're missing the larger issues. I'm only going to touch on this briefly because it is more, more closely dealt with in next week's passage. But it does bear repeating now. We living people are born and we grow up breathing and walking around, yet we are still in need of life. That's who we are. We may find ourselves at some point in some isolated place in need of food or in some dry climate in need of water, physically speaking. And Jesus provides those things, yes. But the life that we really need is spiritual in nature, in here. That's what we really most closely, most importantly, most greatly need. And this kind of life only comes from the hand of Jesus. And it is his primary concern in relation to people. 
It's what he most clearly and most consistently communicates all throughout this book. That's what he really wants to address. And as next week's passage makes clear, that's the ultimate purpose behind this feeding of the 5,000. He's doing something that sets up an opportunity to talk about spiritual bread, spiritual life, spiritual feeding. It comes clear next week. You are alive, but do you have this kind of life? Do you have that spiritual life that is his main concern to bring up to you? We've already seen throughout chapters we've already looked at in this book, we've already seen Jesus speaking with the living and breathing Pharisee Nicodemus and pointing out to him, you're alive, but you need to be born again from above. Have you been born again from above into this kind of spiritual life? We saw him talking to a Samaritan woman, an outcast by a well. He talks to her about water and thirst, but makes clear to her that you need to drink from living water to quench the thirst in here. Have you drunk from that well? Is the thirst in here quenched? Do you know that life? We saw him talk to a paralytic that he'd healed and he warned him that something worse than lifelong paralysis awaited him if he did not turn from his sin to Christ in faith. Have you been healed? Have you turned from your sin and been healed in here and have that kind of life? Is that the case with you? I hope, because that's the main issue. That's what Jesus is really after. He's not, he's not out to condemn, point fingers, cast you down. He's out to make something really clear. You need life. And he alone gives it. Come to him. He does this again and again. He takes something physical and tangible and turns it beyond the physical and tangible to the spiritual and the eternal. Same thing's going on here. It becomes more clear next week, as I said. I'm going to spend more time on it then, but realize the most important life you can have is life in here. Spiritual, eternal life that, that pays dividends now and forever. And that life only comes by being reconnected to the God who made you. A union that has been lost due to your sin. But you can come back. You can hide yourself under the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus, and the judgment will pass over you. Life will come. It's possible. It's possible. Come to him. That's where the story's going. That's what he wants to talk about. And part two's going to explain that a little more. He needs to explain it because the crowds are consistently stuck only in the physical. Jesus wants to talk about the spiritual. But he doesn't only want to talk about the spiritual because he's also concerned about the physical. I'm going to come back to that now. This began, this is the part of this passage that began to get my attention this week as I was looking at this and studying it and thinking about it. Jesus provides life for people physically, too. He does that physically, too. It's right here. Begin to notice this and think about it. The people have a need, physical food, and Jesus does not just say, well, that's kind of tough because really I'm only about the spiritual realm. I have to go figure that out some other way. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't draw such a, a, a harsh distinction between the physical and the spiritual because, in fact, they are connected. There's a relationship there. The spiritual life that I was just talking about, well, when you come to spiritual life, when you come alive again, you're reconnected to God, and the words that the Bible uses are things like adoption. He makes you his children, his sons and his daughters, and like any parent, in relation to their kids, they're concerned about their physical needs. God brings you to life spiritually, and in doing so, he obligates himself to meet your needs physically. That's how he looks at his children, his people. He made us with physical bodies. We inhabit a physical world. And in fact, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but in fact, we will forever have physical bodies changed, but we're not just going to be spirits floating around. We're going to have bodies. We're going to have needs in some way forever. God's going to meet them. We see a little bit of that today. People of God represented here by several thousand Israelites, perhaps, but for sure represented by the twelve apostles, the heads of the church. People of God hunger. And Jesus asks, My, oh my, Phil, where are we ever going to get enough food to feed these people? What's the right answer? What's he looking for? Think about that. What's the right answer to that question? It says it was a test. There's a right answer. The right answer is from you, Jesus. Isn't it? That's what he's looking for. From you, Jesus. You are the Lord. You provide for your people. Good. You give him that answer? Good. You're starting to see something, Philip. You're starting to get it. The wrong answer, what he's not looking for, is let's see what we can do here. Let's gather together all of it. Can we pull this off? Guess not. Or as other Gospels record, the, the wrong answer is we can't do it. Send them away. No. The answer he's looking for is I don't know Jesus, but you do. Tell me what to do. I'm sure you can do this. You're the one who's going to provide for this need. Previous prophets had depended on God to meet the needs of the people. Through Moses, we talked about, God provided physical food. Again, through Elisha, he did it. So in a similar way, God fed his people in the mountains of Galilee. Similarly, but differently. In a way that far surpasses the prophets. Jesus is not just a prophet of God. Jesus is God. That's the point of including the story about him walking on the water. He's not just a prophet through whom God is working. He is God working. Right there. He's the one who does this. Cuts out all the details about the storm and about Peter walking on the water so as to isolate the issue of the deity of Christ. Let's make him king? Yes, let's make him king. And let's make him the king. That's who he is. John shows us Shows him doing far more than Elisha did, walking on the water, claiming to be the I am. Point here. God meets his people's needs. Jesus is God. Jesus meets his people's needs. That's the connection right here in this passage. And he's doing it physically right now. Yes, there's a spiritual point to it. It's coming to that next week. But what he's doing right here, right now, is he's meeting their physical need in the desert. As God.
Jesus provides for the needs of his people. Always? In exactly the way that we think? In exactly the time that we want? No, no, of course not. Of course not. He alone is God. He does what he chooses when he chooses. He is God. Yet, he is also our God. Our Lord. We are his children, if you're a Christian. He's obligated himself to us. We can trust him. He meets our needs. I emphasize, underline, need. Not necessarily want. He knows what we need to live as he wants us to, as long as he wants us to, in whatever way he wants us to. And he will provide what is needed for that. And you can kind of think about, ooh, as he wants to, what if he wants me to live in such a way or for such a length of time? That's true. He could. It's his right. Match to that his goodness and his love for you. He always does good by you. Always. What he determines is your need, and what he determines to meet is good for us. Bank on it. Hide yourself in his nature, in his character. Trust him. He provides for the needs of his people. And he works in our lives to sustain us and mold us and make us who we should be. That's who he is. See a little bit of that here in this passage. The sign is pointing to Jesus' utter, complete power to meet this need. That's, that's what the sign in its essence is pointing to. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? That's the second point, the point of response. Second idea here. We see Jesus providing for the needs of his people. What should we do? Well, we should follow him. We should trust him. Put it in a sentence. Follow him into his cause and trust him for his provision. This is how we're to properly respond to this observation. Follow him into his cause, trust him for his provision. Before we look at that positively, let's consider it negatively. The crowd in the text saw the sign, verse 14. They saw it, and ironically, they grasped some of what that sign was pointing to. They missed some of it. We'll see next week. They they profoundly misunderstood, but they did get some of it. They realized that something from the past was boiling down and coming to a, a head in Jesus. And he had vast power to do things. And they look at that and they say, this is a sign. Something remarkable here. But they didn't press on to ask fully, what's the deal? What's going on? They didn't push on further to ask Jesus, what is your cause? What is your agenda? Instead, they leaped up to draft him into their own cause. They look at him and they say, here is the prophet with vast power. That's just the guy to kick out Rome. That's what we're after. Come, let's do it. Jesus wants nothing of that. There's a warning in that to us. They got an agenda from somewhere else, not from the teachings of Jesus, but from somewhere else, and they try to stick him into it. And the tricky part is that they would have claimed they got this agenda from the Bible. That's the tricky part. 
Is not the prophet, and in their minds they're thinking evidently that the prophet is connected to the Messiah, is not the prophet or the Messiah who was to come also going to be like Moses, one who liberates us from all of our oppressors? So Rome's our oppressor, let's be liberated. Come on, let's do it. We got that right from this text. Sort of. Sort of. This isn't the time to dissect that argument. Suffice it to say that eventually, yes, that's true. Jesus is going to set all the world right. He is going to bring everything to heal under his authority. He's going to fix all things for his people everywhere. Free them from all oppressors. Liberate them in every possible way. That is coming eventually, but not right at that moment. They didn't press on to ask. That's a warning to us. We need to take care to not presume that everything that sounds biblical is right always or right right now. We're still prone to do this, even today. I once sat through a, a group presentation of a direct marketing program. The presenter and most people in the audience were all professing Christians and they were trying to recruit people to this program and the core of the program's pitch was that God is in favor of financial independence and wants all of his people to become financially well-off, independent of jobs that suck up all their time. That's what God wants. And join our program and what's going to happen is that you'll have plenty of time to serve in your church and other ministries because you won't be working. And you'll have plenty of money to give away to missions because you're going to be rich. Now, is God in favor of service and giving? Yes. Is God in favor of workaholism and working all the day long, every day of the week? No. So you can find a few Bible verses to sprinkle on that teaching. And you can put some things together in such a way. People do it. They did it. But there was also something there that smelled like greed and sloth. If we're not careful, we can take all sorts of very human desires and baptize them into a Christianity of sorts and seek to use Jesus and his power to fulfill our purposes. Jesus, help us build our church. You're into that, right? Well, sure. But really, if we think about it, we're... We're concerned about it because we just want to protect our egos in relation to other churches in the area. Jesus, help me protect and provide for my family. You're into that, right? Husbands protecting and providing for their family. And so that surely means that I need to, to heap up a massive bank account and a massive savings account and a massive retirement account and a massive college account. And I need to buy a really big car so they can be safe when they drive around and a really big house. You're into all that stuff, right? Maybe. If we look at our hearts, we might actually be more concerned with hoarding money and comfort and pleasure and greed. The difficult thing is that you can sprinkle just enough Bible on that to sound okay with it. And there are no hard and fast lines that I should tell you, how much should you save for college? It's probably something. How much should you save for retirement? Probably something. How much? I don't know. How big of a house should you live in? I don't know. I don't know. There aren't any hard and fast rules here. This comes to us as a caution. Take this and sift yourself with it. 
We people are prone to coming up with agendas and drafting Jesus to fill them. Instead, commit yourself to say, Jesus, what is your cause? I'm going to follow you into it. Saying that doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it simply or perfectly. But that's the place that we need to be. Not, I have an idea that I come to Jesus with, but Jesus, what do you want? What do you have for me, for us as a group? If in your heart, you're committing yourself to that kind of thinking, you've crossed one of the hurdles. But I think that there is another hurdle that's perhaps a little more common in response to this Jesus who has the power to provide for all of life. This is the one I find myself doing a little more. We forget it or ignore it. Even though we've read all the way through verse 21, we're still stuck in verses 7 to 9 with the disciples. That's where we still are. We're standing there with Jesus, seeing a need right in front of us, scattered on the hills, and we look at our own visible resources, which are already sitting right there on the table, and say, that can't be done. That's not going to happen. We respond without faith. This is where God began to get some traction in my life from this, from this passage. I tend to be conservative and cautious, risk-averse, if you will. And that's okay in some settings, but not in all settings. But it occurs to me, as here's some of my thinking from this last week as I was kind of sifting through this passage, it occurs to me that very often in the Christian life, Jesus deliberately draws us to his side, so to speak, shows us the 10 or 15,000 people sitting there, hungry, and turns to us and says, what are we going to do? A test to me. I think he does that pretty frequently. And the wrong answer is to look at what's already visible on the table and say, nothing. What are we going to do? Nothing. Can't. It's the wrong answer. You see, when he asks that question, when he stands us there at his side looking at his cause right there that's vast beyond all reasonable number, when he asks us that question, there are two things that are on the line. Two things that he's vastly concerned about. My faith and his glory. Those two things are right there up for grabs. My faith, your faith perhaps, it's about to be stretched. It is being challenged. It's about to be stretched and perhaps grown if I will follow him into his cause and see his provision. My faith and his glory, when he provides, he shows himself, nobody could do that but me. Look at that. Nobody could even think of doing that but me. And I did it. And there's 12 times as much as there was when we started. Am I not glorious and powerful and mighty? And I say, wow. Yes, you are. I believe a little more. You're honored a little more. My faith and his glory are, are on the line there. And it occurs to me as I keep thinking about this, that the issues of faith and glory do not arise apart from challenge and adversity. If I'm looking and saying, you know, I need to step right over there, Boy, I hope I have the faith to do this. Oh, look, I did. 
That's not challenging. I I rarely find my faith stretched when I do that. I, I rarely stop and think and praise God for, I should, but I rarely think it all through that he gave such grace in my life that I was able to do this. There's no adversity there. There's no challenge there. My faith isn't stretched, and he's only minimally glorified. I think all those things through, I ruminate on them about what he's after. I think he does that frequently about the environments that must exist for his faith, for my faith to be growing, his glory to be magnified. I think that through, and then it occurs to me the truth of of a statement that I heard some time back, and it was in a ministry context, so I'll say it that way first. Essentially, this person sometime back was saying, in ministry, you will always have shortages. Always. And you will always have Jesus to meet them by design. Follow that through? In ministry, in life, in ministry, you will always have shortages and you will always have Jesus to meet them by design. by design he creates adversity and challenge he deliberately calls us to his side and says look at that crowd what are we going to do about that think through your life where do you lack where is there adversity and challenge in your life and don't define lack too narrowly as just I lack food or you could think I lack money I lack personnel I lack knowledge Insight, wisdom, courage. I lack. What do you lack? Where do you lack? That right there is the opportunity for faith and glory to be grown. You're there by design. Walk with him into that cause. Whatever it is. I don't, I don't know what it is in your life. Think about your life. Respond to him, Lord, if this is your cause, I don't know what to do about it, but you do. I can't meet this need. I can't do it, but you can. Show me what to do. I'm not trying to draft you into my cause, Lord. I'm in yours here. Help. I want to honor you with my faith. Show up and show yourself to be something that I don't understand yet, that I don't know yet, but will amaze me. Respond to him like that. For me, I realize that I've been thinking about this church too much in the realm of can we and not enough in the realm of should we. See the difference there. I've been thinking too much in the realm of can we? Can we do this? Can we work this? Can we pull this off? Is this possible? And not enough in the realm of does he want it? There's a, there's a great difference in the... Those might not sound like they're very far apart, but they take you to really different places. And I think probably my leadership has seeped some of that. Some of that has seeped out of me into different parts of the church. It must have been here 15 months now. It must have seeped in somewhere or another. I'm sorry for that if it has, because I've been infecting you with something. (laughs) It's It's not right. Now, eventually, of course, we do have to think about the can we. We have to get down to the details because he's given us minds and, and the disciples actually had to figure out, okay, how are we going to dish out all this food to all these people? There's only 12 of us. There's thousands of them. So they had to think that through. And we do eventually need to think about the can we or how can we, but that's not the place where we start. It's not the first question. 
that sets up the perfect environment for faithlessness because the obvious answer most of the time is can we no look on the back of the look on the back of the bulletin how much money did we receive last week or last month nope can't do that set you up for failure it creates the environment for faithlessness as an aside, I might add that sometimes you look at the table and you say, well, we've got plenty of resources here. There's just as much opportunity for faithlessness there because you might have plenty of resources for the vision or for the task at hand because your vision or task at hand is too small. Because you're only looking right here, not looking here. If the disciples had kind of gotten tunnel vision, they would have said, well, we have enough food to feed these three people. Oh, it's a bigger, bigger task, isn't there? Look up. If you find that I'm not actually lacking anything, look up. Maybe you need a bigger vision. What's the point? What I'm getting at here is that Christians, as Christians, we are called to faithfully seek the Lord's will, His cause, and then follow Him into it. Trust Him to provide. I'm not saying that it's a simple question to ask. What's the Lord's cause here? What's the Lord's will for me or for us? This is not the part of the sermon where I tell you what the Lord's will is for you or for us. I don't know that. It's not a simple question, but it's the right question, the one that needs to first be asked. Find out his cause and follow him into it and trust him for his provision. Jesus is able to and willing to provide for the needs of his people. He has that kind of power. Follow him. In your life, follow him as a part of this church. Trust him to meet our needs. I hope we grow in that, individually and corporately especially. I'm going to move to communion now, where we will take of the bread of life. might be better if it's lined up with next week, but... We understand Jesus is talking about himself as the bread of life that nourishes, sustains us, gives us life. We're moving towards it now. We're going to celebrate communion here as a body in just a minute. But as we do that, we're going to take some time to pray. Think through, where do I lack? Where are you putting my faith and your glory on the line in my life? Give me grace to respond appropriately to that, Lord. Pray like that, and I'll close this in a minute. We'll move to communion. Lord, we thank you for being a good parent to us, shepherding us through life, growing us up to know you more, and meeting our needs. Give us faith to trust you. Give us faith to, to lean on you and to follow you. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful for your work in our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 
South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.